Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Method Ministries, where we do talks, debates, interviews, and more. And I am here with Dr. Vic, and he's going to tell us all about Wesleyan, classic Wesleyan eschatology, Methodist eschatology. So Dr. Vic, uh, thank you so much for being here, and I'm super excited to have you here. Thanks. It's good to be with you, Lucas. Yeah, definitely. Uh, do you want to just give a quick introduction for uh, for the audience in case they don't know, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm sure they do know <laughs> if they're tuning in. Well, um, I've been a pastor for 44 years and have done a lot of research and extracurricular activities. Retired from the pastorate and moved here to Wilmore in August of 2022. And I was hired by the Francis Asbury Society. I'm director for the Francis Asbury Institute, um, but I'm involved in preaching and research and writing and editing. I'm also president for the Fundamental Wesleyan Society, which also is a publishing entity. A couple of different hats you wear, it sounds like. That's right. Yeah. With no hat, I'm ball-headed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, so can you can you walk us through classic Methodist eschatology or, you know, the broader term, I guess, Wesleyan eschatology, but, you know, for some it's the same, some it's not. Okay. Let, let's talk first about what eschatology itself means. Eschatos is the Greek word for end or end times. And so this is a division of theological studies dealing with uh, future events as uh, predicted by the scripture. Now, before we get into the Methodist emphasis, I think it's important, Lucas, that we talk about the non-negotiables, the things that are basic. And sometimes we get so um, committed to a particular position of some uh, area of speculation that we almost break fellowship. But I think there's five uh, basics that I, I just want to get this on the table before we move on. Jesus Christ is coming back a second time. That's called the second advent. That And so uh, all, all Bible-believing uh, Christians should affirm that Christ is coming again. There will be a general judgment there will be um, a general resurrection. I should have said resurrection uh, before judgment. Um, and then there's a final destiny of heaven or hell. And those are our cardinal or basic or fundamental doctrines. Now, we can agree to disagree on on some secondary issues, but these things are primary. Within the Methodist emphasis, um, I, I want to just walk through a list of things that are characteristic of, of what the Methodist um, theologians and preachers um, have, have emphasized. And I'm not saying, uh, like the first one is the centrality of Jesus Christ. Well, we don't have a monopoly on that. We're not the only ones that would say that, but it's the mix of, of all on this list that would be unique to us. But what I mean by the centrality of Jesus Christ is uh, even the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ is coming again. And, and I think sometimes we get so caught up in speculation on who the Antichrist might be that we give more time to Antichrist than we do to Christ. Well, 
that's a that's a trick of the devil and we've got to avoid that we've got to uplift jesus christ eschatology really begins with the resurrection of jesus christ uh his ascension and sessioned into heaven and the outpouring of the spirit at pentecost and so i want to wrap all that up in this term the victory of the cross it's not that we are defeated and are going down for the last time when Jesus comes just at the last moment and rescues us, we already have won the battle. And uh, we are to live into that victory. So uh, that's an important emphasis. Then the, the dominion of God's people. And I would tie that with the social responsibility of the church. Now, What's what's interesting, Lucas, is is the conservatives are um, engaged in some social issues. Those who are more modernists would be engaged in other social issues, and we're not going to get into that. That we won't open that can of worms necessarily. But you see, there is another eschatological position that says it's all futile. Um, man, we're just about out of here, and. Uh, Anything we do to try to make this world a better place is wasted. Methodists don't believe that. And um, as I get into um, some of the specifics and talk about post-millennial theology, and, and we'll get there, but that's that's a secondary issue. But, but post-millennialism, from a very practical sense, is more earthly-minded. We're not totally uh, focused on escaping or getting out of here. God put us here for a reason, and we're to do all the good we can while we're here. And so um, that is that is all implied in the Methodist eschatology. And so we believe that the kingdom of God was established at Christ's first advent. You see, the other view that, that I will politely be pushing back against believes that that kingdom was postponed and will not be established until Christ comes the second time. Well, that has radical implications in how we live here on earth. And I, I'm working through this list, and I hope I'm not hitting you too quickly with too much. But A lot, yeah, yeah, keep going. Thank you. Well, you can stop me anytime. You're the one in charge. But oh. um, I believe um, Methodism puts a premium on the urgency of evangelism. And, and I know that sounds just very practical and very basic, yeah. but Methodist eschatology at its most basic point was flee the wrath to come. And that was the criteria to join the Methodist class meetings or the Methodist society. Mm. You didn't have to be a believer. You didn't have to have assurance of salvation. Did you have a desire to flee the wrath to come? You're familiar with that, but see, that's yeah. eschatological. Yeah. There's yeah, judgment coming. And yeah, so, even like the Lord's Supper. So, uh, th there's a very practical aspect to uh, Methodist eschatology, and, and Methodism was not given to speculation. 
It was this practical thing. Jesus is coming. His kingdom is already here. And we want to preach the gospel and reach as many people as we can. Then there was this emphasis on the necessity of holy living. And some of the listeners may say, well, that's another subject. But you know, what's interesting is every major passage in the Bible that talks of eschatology or the second advent always leaves us with unanswered questions. But it Mm. always closes the loop by coming around and saying, in light of this, you need to be ready. You need to live holy. You need to have your garments white, that kind of language. And I think uh, Methodism connected practical holiness with eschatology. And so um, let me just give you one more, and then I'll I'll, I'll slow down for a moment. Um, (laughs) Methodism was hopeful, and they believed the hope of revival was that was a part of, of their worldview. At one point, Wesley was commenting on 18th century Methodism, and I'm quoting him now, I trust this is only the beginning of a far greater work, the dawn of the latter-day glory. The Methodists saw themselves as a vehicle um, for expanding God's kingdom. And that was all driven eschatologically. One more quote. Wesley said, and you'll know this one, give me 100 preachers Mm. who fear nothing but sin. See, that's that's the holiness aspect. Desire nothing but God. That's holiness in positive terms. I care not whether they be clergy or laymen. That was a big debate, uh, which is not such an issue now. But listen to this. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. Well, that is very specifically eschatological. And actually, um, there are many people today who do not believe we can do anything to set up the kingdom of God on, on earth, that we must await the second coming of Christ. And so that is a very uh, implicit post-millennial statement. Wesley, in fact, never used the term pre-millennial or post-millennial, but it's implied in his whole worldview. So I've just walked through kind of a, it's the mix of all of those things. Now, uh, let me just stop and and see where you want to go with that, Lucas. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that great overview. So the first thing I have is, um, what would you say, because it seems like that, that, you know, we look at history, the dominant eschatology of the Methodist movement, or the people called Methodists, was post-millennialism. What, uh, what would you say the percentage was between, because you know, maybe there were some amillennialists there, but it generally kind of seems to come down to pre- or post-millennialists. Like, what was, was it like 80%, like, like was it 90% of them were post-millennial, and then some of them were just you know, scattered here and there? Lucas, it was 100%. <laughs> A hundred. <laughs> now, um, 25 years ago, I, I wrote a book called The Hope of the Gospel. Okay. And um, I, I have um, read all of the extant early Methodist literature on eschatology, I think, mm. unless there's some obscure reference I'm not aware of. But in my book, I surveyed the writings 
of about 40 Methodist theologians over a span of 150 years. And this included every systematic theology that was written up in, well into the 20th century. Wow. And every one of them were post-millennial. Was, did, did, did that list include uh, Joseph Benson? Yes. It did, because uh, when I read his notes, it seems like he was uh, premillennial, like like on Revelation twenty four. The difference was he believed that we would that the um, the resurrection of of the saints would wouldn't be on the earth; it would be in in heaven. But he believed it was a real, literal, um, uh-huh. you know, physical resurrection rather than a new life in Christ, or uh, you know, like in terms of salvation. Yeah. And there are there can be internal debates, and and those yeah. can be helpful. But essentially, here here's the watershed issue: to be premillennial, you have to find the second advent in Revelation chapter nineteen, and I can't find it there. Gotcha. Uh, so so um, and. We don't want to muddy the water any more that's necessary, but we do want to help our, our readers navigate through this. The term amillennial is an unfortunate term, um, which is, um, which is conceded by, by amillennial spokesmen, spokespersons. Mm. Um, and, and they, they say it would probably be a better defined as realized eschatology. Yeah. Well, that doesn't distinguish us from them, uh, post mill from all mill. Um, actually, um, the term all millennium or all millennial did not come into vogue until the 1930s. And so that that comes after the classic Methodist theologians. And so historically, it's between pre-millennial or post-millennial. Now, if I can say this clearly, um, amills are post-mill in regard to Christ's return. Now, does that make sense? Yeah. In other words, we're in the the millennium now, Christ comes afterwards. And um, all post-mills are all-mill in regard to the nature of the millennium. So to be amill, I remember when I started preaching at 20, that's a dangerous thing to have a 21-year-old preacher because yeah. you, just, you just repeat what you've heard. Be careful heard. there. <laughs> was, oh, you'll outgrow it. <laughs> no, you're already, you're already past that. Uh, yeah, 32, but I look young. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's a blessing, so just, yeah. just, just hang on to it as long as you can. <laughs> you see, millennium does not believe, it does not imply that they discount Revelation 20. Yeah. It means that they do not accept the premillennial interpretation of Revelation 20, and neither do the postmills. You know, I have read so much literature on this, and I've seen certain theologians labeled as both all mill and post mill, and it depends on how you slice it. Um, yeah. Uh, some things I'll say in this interview would be very consistent with all millennialism. So that's kind of a a separate issue. I, if I could just say it as simply as I can, 
post-millennialists are optimistic amillennialists. Yes, I heard that term. Now, can you explain, because, you know, when when, when people hear the term today, post-millennial, mm-hmm. they think this this newer type, but if you look at it, you know, in a classical sense, and this is what I learned, you know, myself too, which is very interesting, is that there are major differences between the more so partial preterist post-millennial mm-hmm. that, you know, we see today. So can you explain, you know, the differences and, you know, the key differences between Methodist post-millennialism and today's post-millennialism? Well, um, I'm familiar with with those who are partial uh, preterists, and um, that is a, a dominion or reconstructionist theology uh, that that is very Calvinistic, um, and I, I think that's what you're referring to. Um, yeah, I've I've worked through a lot of their material, and uh, one of the interesting things is. Is is that they they base their eschatology um, very heavily on Milton S. Terry, who in fact was a Methodist theologian. That's right. That's right. And so um, this is not necessarily a point of difference between us and them, but for them, uh, and I'm not prepared to give you a lecture on what that view holds, but it's five, at least five or six different points, um, not the least of which is, is, is five-point Calvinism. So we would differ with them on other points, but um, um, just, just to name names for the sake of reference, um, Kenneth Gentry, who would be mm-hmm. in that circle, would be a very uh, helpful resource and um, and has actually uh, been in correspondence with me personally. We agree to disagree on on some of the basic Calvinist issues, but um, I th- I think they're very helpful in this area of eschatology. Yeah, because I think you know what people you know what I you know learned too, and it was really surprising to me is the difference was historicism, mm-hmm. where you know like everybody and their contemporaries you know back then was just an historicist, so. You know, they they interpreted um, if you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but historicism. You know, the best way I can explain it is they interpret Revelation as a history book, yes, gradually unfolding, but not in terms of a history book as it's all past, but kind of including the now and, and the future and up until the consummation okay. of Christ. Would that be since, anything? You, okay, Kirk, since uh, Lucas, since we've since we've already taken the lid off that can of worms, <laughs> let, let me admit that the early Methodists were historicists. Now, what that means, we're talking now about how we interpret the book of Revelation itself. So this is a a very subset in eschatology. Why were they historicists? Because all Protestants were. And um, I think that the historicist position basically disproved itself. Hmm. Uh, very quickly, they had to use the, a formula that we call the day-year formula. Yes. A- and so they take Peter's words, I think, out of context. He was just making a comparison. They take that as a formula. And so when you've got 1,260 days of tribulation, they convert that to years. And then you start from... um uh the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and you you go f- fast forward 
1,260 years or so. And that's why you had people in the 1830s declaring that Jesus was coming. And they there were thousands dressed in white on the hillside because William Miller had had done the math. Um, and so what you do with that when it doesn't work out, you can play with the start date. You can keep pushing it further ahead in time, but at some point it breaks. Mm. And, um, and people like Moses Stewart, and uh, and he was very influential on Milton S. Terry. Um, these people were living through this period, and when they saw that that couldn't work, they went to the preterist position. Gotcha. Because you know, one of the interesting things too is that um, classical postmillennialism believed that Revelation twenty and nineteen was still a future, mm-hmm. which is very different from today. Yeah. You know, rather than you know. Today, the the, the post millennialists um, they they interpret that in an millennialist sense, mm-hmm. where you know, including you know the Methodists, the Presbyterians, you know, majority of them who were uh, post millennialists, they were you know they were uh, or held to historicism. So that means they 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 put the millennial as something future yeah. and and waiting. And I think you know that's a a big difference because you know what's interesting too is that they uh, they actually agreed. With the premillennialists, both the pre-mill and the on-mill, I'm sorry, both the pre-mill and the post-mill agreed the millennial was future. Mm-hmm. It was just the on-mill who would disagree with them. So, it, you know, yeah. I think that's a, that's a key difference that, you know, it's important to highlight for people. And, and we're dealing really with the historical development of the doctrine. But um, really at that time, there was not really a, a, an on-mill position. It was really pre or post. And, and, um, the issue was that the premillennialists believed that Christ was coming to set up his kingdom and that his coming was imminent. Um, the postmillennial position believed that the kingdom was here, but that the millennium was imminent. And so in that sense, I think that's what you're saying. In that sense, the early Methodists uh, saw the millennium in a futuristic sense, but they didn't necessarily interpret all of Revelation in a futuristic sense. Gotcha. And then they would tie that millennial into the conversion. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh-huh. They would tie that millennial into the conversion of Israel. Yes. And then, then the papacy would be defeated. Islam would be defeated. Yes. And is is that safe to say like that was the majority Revelation 19 interpretation? Like that was when Christ would defeat the, the Pope and Islam, the false religions, and Israel would be converted. And that would be the beginning of, of the thousand years. And uh, I th- I think that the now we're, t- we're trying to um, be fair to a historicist position that yes. we neither one hold to necessarily, but I think they would find those battles and victories happening all the way through the book of Revelation. Okay. And so Revelation 19 is sort to me is sort of a summary picture that Christ is on his white horse and he's riding across history. He is leading the battle. And I wouldn't tie that picture to any date. It's kind of what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. He will be leading the army of God 
on from victory to victory until his return in chapter 20. Now, no, um, how does this different different now from the you know the Calvinist uh, uh, dominionist aspect? You know, because you mentioned that yes. before. And um, I just want uh, want to say that, that um, we as Wesleyan Arminians take sharp distinction with Calvinists, particularly in the area of salvation or soteriology. But the, it seems like once we get past that, <laughs> in the broad sense, that we kind of come back together. Oh yeah, in our understanding of the church, in our understanding of the sacraments, um, and in our eschatology. And yeah. so, I want to be careful to to be fair. Um, this is not necessarily an issue that divides. Methodists and Calvinists, or Wesleyans and Calvinists. Now, when we're talking specifically about dominion theology, that could have political implications that we may or may not buy into. But, and, and you see, there's uh, four or five points in their agenda. And uh, we may agree with them on one or two, and may not dis uh, may agree to disagree on the others. So um, I, I'm not trying to say there's not a difference, but just eschatology in and of itself is not the great point of difference. Gotcha. Would uh, would you agree, or would it be fair for me to say that the difference with their postmillennialism was soteriological? Because they were pietists, so they believed that the revival would happen. I'm oh, sorry, uh, the millennial you know would come about through revivals, and that would just increase and increase until the world was, you know, to use their term, uh, under do, under the dominion mm-hmm. of of Christ, and then, then converting to or being converted to to Christians, and that would just spread gl- uh, globally. So it would start then salvifically rather than through. You know, like kind of, you know, there's a um, today. There's a heavy emphasis on on theomony mm-hmm. and you know politics, yeah. where the Methodists were pietists. Yeah, and 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 actually, Lucas, I think that's where they would criticize us, is okay. is because we're the ones who are trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit in revival, and not necessarily in legislation, uh, the legislation of God's law. Um, I, I want to be fair because um, uh, they may not all be saying exactly the same thing. My understanding is as a movement, it, it's kind of uh, come to an, an end, but individual scholars have continued um, their development. Uh, but yeah, I think they would criticize us in that regard that that we are more pietistic. Now, I would want to push back and say that the Methodist revival of the 18th century had profound political implications. And, it always does, doesn't it? And, yeah. and changed the whole course of English history and brought great reform. The difference may be that they're trying to legislate the reform, and we are trying to see this move of the Spirit, which we believe will not stop until there is political reform. Yes. And, and, you know, that's what, you know, um, I, I wanted to highlight too, cause um, I am like, an, uh, I'm not like, I, I am a, a premillennialist, but like, I want to, you know, you, you know, you, you to kind of, you know, show that difference between the two, because, mm-hmm. you know, what I discovered is that the post millennialism today is not 
the Methodist postmillennialism, or even the you know the Puritans or or Presbyterians, where they were more you know pietistic and it was soteriological rather than a political. And it seems like today people are kind of like hijacking the entire postmillennialism and claiming it as their own when there were some key differences between yeah. the two. Yeah, and um, it's interesting that. Um, that there is this overlap. They they have. Uh, if I could just be uh, transparent here, one of their organizations sold my book until they read it. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> uh, I used and then they got rid of it. They they dropped it. Um, not not because of the eschatology, but because of of the basic ish differences in our understandings as Arminians and Calvinists. So, so even post mills have their differences. Yeah. Yeah. Real quick, before we move on to the next thing, um, I want to ask about John Wesley's end time. So I read his notes um, and I, you know, did some studying to, uh, you know, some other people. I was surprised to find two things and, you know, I just want to, you know, pick your brain a little bit on this. Um, one, he held to a dual millennialist view, yes. if we go by his notes, with his, which is which is from Johann Mangel. That's right. And then two, I'm surprised that not more Wesleyans over the years have tried to adapt this. So can you kind of, you know, real quick, like kind of walk us through John Wesley's Revelation 20 interpretation? Well, the unfortunate thing is that in Wesley's explanatory notes on the New Testament, he did not write the notes for Revelation, but instead mm. he adopted Bingle's interpretation. Bingle was uh, a, a very well-known um, commentator of another day. Um, I wish Wesley had not done that. Um, <laughs> but um, people read that to find out what Wesley thought, and he basically makes a disclaimer that he doesn't necessarily agree, but he's trying to provide this kind of academic scholarship for his lay preachers. That, that was why the explanatory notes were written. And, and um, we just have to make the disclaimer that that doesn't really fit implicitly what we mine out of Wesley's sermons, for instance, and things like that. Um, John Fletcher was probably the most given to speculative eschatology of any of the Methodists. He apparently also held to this dual millennialism. Okay. And it was sort of a popular view. I think really? it's died off. It was popular in a certain period of history. It, it's hmm. hard. I don't know anybody today that would hold, hold to that. But you see... Here's here's the danger of labels. Um, both Bingle and, and Fletcher would have believed that Christ came a second time before the millennium and a third time after the millennium. Well, then, are they pre-mill or post-mill? Well, unfortunately, both sides claim them, and I think that's a little disingenuous. I, I think that misleads people to say, well, this is what Wesley believed. No, it was just what he put in his notes for reflection. And it, it, you see, really, neither side can claim them as their own if, the, if they have a second advent and a third advent. And, and, and so that muddies the water, I think. And, um, 
I believe uh, the second, because um, I heard that objection to that that uh, Bengal, you know, was accused of dating the, the the coming of Christ, and then, but you know, if you look at it, there there was just confusion where he believed that the first millennial, because you know, there was two millennials in their view, mm-hmm. so he he predicted the first millennial would happen from this period, mm-hmm. and the second would follow that. And I think that people got carried away thinking, oh, you 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 are saying that this is the second coming of Christ. Yeah. And really what he said was, this is just the millennial. And the millennial for him didn't have to mean Christ's second coming. It just means the start of the first thousand year reign. You know, I, I, I think that that's probably confusing to every one of our listeners. And if that's the case, I want to join them and say it's confusing to me too. And uh, I, I think that... Um, if we can apply uh, Ackman's razor to this eschatology, God's God's plan is probably not nearly as complicated as we've made it. And I, I think the simplest approach probably is is the better approach, and not try to find something that every scholar has missed for two thousand years and create your own eschatological position. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, uh, when I first found out about you know Wesley's view on this and and doing my own study, I was I, you know I was surprised that there was a fourth millennial view, and and it took me some time. And even now, like um, you know, I wish that I could talk to Wesley, be like, you know, what do you think about this? You know, what do you yeah. think about that? Because there's some problems and you know and questions that just you know would naturally arise from having that 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 dual millennial view. I think what's interesting is that as as Methodism began to to self-identify and begin to f- really form its position. You know, when you look at uh, at our the- theologians like Richard Watson on, they they don't dabble in this kind of stuff. They're yeah, they're they very don't. they're pretty straightforward in their postmillennial view. Yeah, um, I think Richard Watson's too Valium. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think he didn't even touch on this, if if my memory serves me correctly. You know, um. I have his sermons, and mm. uh, he, let me say this: he he is very post millennial in his sermons, but not in a speculative way. See, he was very interested in world missions, and and his sermons, many of them, um, were were very uh, uh, encouraging to share the gospel with the whole world because this is. This is their eschatology. So again, it's a practical. It's it's evangelism. It's it's preaching to the whole world, and and uh, he believed that that they would be successful and it would convert the whole world. It's probably a perfect segue to talk about how does this compare now to today's eschatology, which is primarily dispensational. Uh, you know, that just seems to be the dominant American view right now. So, can you kind of give us like some key distinctions between Methodist eschatology and today's eschatology okay. in, so in America. All, all dispensationalists are premillennial, but not all premillennialists are dispensational. However, yeah. most of most premills are probably dispensational. I'm not. <laughs> okay. So, um, so you've already gone up in my estimation just by saying that, Lucas. <laughs> no, I, I always have to let people know. Uh-huh. People always think I'm a, I'm a dispensationalist. I always yeah. have to say I'm not a dispensationalist. And 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 for people who want want to to interact with this, um, would you agree George Elton Ladd would be a good source to go to? 
Absolutely, yes. Okay, and, and so Ladd is a historical premillennialist, and so we we don't want to um, falsely accuse anyone, but now dispensationalism is is the popular view. In other words, it's the left behind view, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, I'm afraid, Lucas. There's a lot of um, uh, prophetic experts who who haven't even read the literature; they just saw the movie, and so That's they know true. they know how it's all. And and you know the the insidious thing is when you not only read it but you hear it and you see it on the big screen. It's it's embedded in your memory. You think it's scripture, and 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 then. Th- there would be an attempt to try to make scripture conform with that worldview. Now, um, dispensationalism historically started with John Darby back in the 1830s, and it was really unknown in the church up until that time. Um, Because I knew you were going to ask me about the basic differences between... Well, I ha- I have here a book called um, "A Substitute for Holiness or Antinomianism Revived" by mm. Daniel Steele. Daniel Steele was a great American Methodist theologian who actually personally interacted with John Darby when Darby made some tours to America. Oh wow! And so he records that in there, and so. Um, if, if it's all right for me to say, um, Smool Publishers ha- has reprinted this book, which Daniel Steele would have written back in the late 1800s. Okay. But I think part of the value of it is that Steele represents the old line Methodism. The last article Steele ever wrote before his death was entitled, Why I Am Not a Premillennialist. But what's interesting is that he engages John Darby, um, and and what Steele's concern is, is one of the things I'm going to start off with. Steele says that within dispensational teaching, there's an inherent lawlessness or antinomianism. That is, that uh, you can be a Christian without ever showing any fruit of, of Christianity, and, and no one even knows that you're a Christian. Now, um, Lewis Ferry Schaefer wrote a book called He Who is Spiritual, and he says there's an optional second step in which you devote your life to God and and start trying to serve him. But the the carnal Christian is eternally secure whether or not they ever make that optional dedication. Easy believism. And 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 so you see what we're supposed to be talking about eschatology, but Methodist eschatology is practical. We believe that people need to get right with God and then his kingdom expands. But uh um Daniel Steele is very concerned about this this understanding. But to go on, um, dispensationalism would would teach that social action is futile, that uh, we 
they would believe that rapture is imminent. And so the worse it gets, the quicker we're out of here is, is at least the consistent mentality. Some people, however, um, are inconsistent with their own presuppositions. And sometimes people do good, even, even though their position would be it's futile. So I want to give them credit for that. Yeah. Cause primarily, you know, what I le- learned, uh, is that dispensational, you know, though it's a popular belief, what that really means for the layman, the person in the pew is not anything really to do with the millennial. It's all just about the rapture. Mm-hmm. And I would even say, and this is, isn't just a knock on, but this is just from my experience of talking to people is that if you ask them what they believe on the millennial or where the Bible speaks about it, they probably wouldn't be able to tell you or know much about it. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, this is automatic association with end times and the rapture. So the rapture is like the accumulation of everything for them. So really, you know, like you said, like it doesn't matter what, you know, what else happens mm-hmm. and, and we're going to be gone at any minute and let's just wait for the rapture. We want to just be raptured from our responsibilities. And, you know, there's some vitriolic uh, attacks if, if, if you go after that, Yes, you know, I get called some, you know, names or maybe like a heretic, <laughs> Um, but you know, you know, again, like, like, like that's the primary difference. I think is is rapture theology versus millennialism. Yeah, and um, some people are better than their theology. I think Methodist theology is is superior. But the fact is, I might not be as good as my theology, and so uh, we can't just. There's a certain type of analysis that wants to pigeonhole everyone, and yes. uh, and the bottom line is they're all wrong and we're all right. We, we've got to be careful with that. But since you've introduced this concept of rapture, um, the word rapture never occurs in Scripture, but neither does the word trinity. These are these are misleading arguments. Um, rapture is based on a Latin word that is derived from the Greek word in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. It's that, it's that collection of words, caught up together, that um, in Greek is harpazo, and the Latin equivalent is rapture kidzo or something like that. Mm. Um, anyway, I believe in whatever Paul is describing in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but I do not necessarily, or I don't at all, accept the um, the box they've built for that. And, and you see, the dispensational doctrine of rapture is based on a presupposition that God has two plans and two people, Israel and the church. And so Jesus came to set up a Jewish kingdom. The Jewish people rejected that. And so that plan was put on hold. And so God moves to plan B. Um, I've heard preachers, even as a kid, I heard preachers talking about the church as a parenthesis in God's plan. Mm -hmm. Now, here's here's a point of great difference. The church is no parenthesis. The church is God's plan, and the church is God's only plan. 
This is Methodist theology at, at the heart, is, is we believe in the church. Dispensationalism has a low view of the church because they believe that by the time of the rapture, the church at large will be in apostasy and only a remnant, namely them, will will be caught up in this secret rapture. Now, the Bible never gives us this whole timetable, but it's necessary to their assumptions because we have to get the Gentile church off the stage because now God's going to revert back to plan A. Mm. And so the millennium is something that's going to happen on earth and and if you've watched the movie or or you know if you've studied this you see the church is going to be in heaven and that's probably why many lay dispensationalists haven't thought that much about the millennium they've been told that we won't even participate in it it's a jewish millennium jesus will literally be sitting on a throne in jerusalem and it will be a restored jewish kingdom well what I've already said is the kingdom was established at his first advent. You and I are in his kingdom, but the nature of that kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom, not a Jewish political kingdom. So there's vast differences here. Once we start down one road or start down the other road, we begin to see that the implications are huge. Yeah, so basically, you know, you, you know, one of the things that you know what you're referring to is that you know the primary difference is ecclesiological. Yes, and then the rapture in Methodist theology, which is in majority of Christianity, uh, you know, theology, the rapture is, is a resurrection. Yeah. Usually, mm-hmm. you know, what happens with you know because of those movies, the rapture gets associated with the left behind. Yes. And really, in the biblical term, is is a resurrection. And if yes. we can switch our framework, okay. uh-huh. then that would be. You know, a, key, a huge difference. Yeah. So, uh, the, in in eschatology, to me, rapture is a very, very minor concept. But of course, it's the all-consuming concept um, for 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 that worldview. Yeah, and and I did like how you pointed out too is that some of us aren't, um, you know, I forget the terminology you used, but some of us don't live up to our theology mm-hmm. or some of us are better that uh you know than our theology because you know i think that that is important because you know what i also have experienced is that some dispensationalists have been more faithful than post-millennialists mm-hmm. and you know i don't like to throw everybody under you know a blanket and say yes. if you're this theology you're a loser because i think you know there's a lot of that going around now where if you want to be seen as a cool person you got to be a post-millennialist now mm-hmm. when then you know you know what happens is anybody else who's not Oh, you know, I'm just going to pigeonhole you and put you in this pessimistic box. So, mm-hmm. you know, that is, is very, you know, you know, it's very important, you know, point that out because again, you know, you know, there's a, there's a lot of that rhetoric going on. Mm-hmm. Would you say though, too, cause I want to ask you about this now. Okay. So, so you mentioned holiness. Yes. So, you know, what I'm thinking in my mind is entire sanctification is, is, is that in Methodist, the, you know, eschatology and uh, is there a, a corresponding truth to, you know, the eschaton to entire sanctification, and that's what you mean in terms of holiness mm-hmm. when we speak about these things? Well, um, so many terms are loaded, and, and I know that's a loaded term. <laughs> um, and the whole church teaches holiness, but they tend, uh, every 
branch of the church, with no exclusion, has some type of holiness. It may be ritual. It may be ceremonial. It may be corporate. It may be positional. But Methodism is not the distinction from all of those. It's the best of all of those. What Wesley did was not invent sanctification, but he articulated it in a way that um, that that he drew from from the streams of of all church traditions. So um, the, it's the American holiness movement then who began to narrow holiness down to a second work or a second crisis. Well, I'm not discounting that that may be the way God works in some people's lives, but I want to be careful to say that we can't prescribe how God works. But from the moment of prevenient grace, the work of the Holy Spirit is to make us holy. And and every true, every truly uh, regenerate person is initially sanctified. They've been set apart from the world. And then there is that growth. In the growth, there may be crisis times when there has to be another surrender. Um, but I'm, I'm pushing back against this idea that you have to buy in to a certain paradigm. See, I, th- I think when Methodism was preaching to the world, they were careful. And when we started preaching to ourselves, we got kind of sloppy. Hmm. And um, some of the things I I grew up hearing, really, I wouldn't want to have to explain to anybody that wasn't a part of that subculture. You know know what, now uh, let's transition now because I want to hear your personal beliefs on eschatology. So if if you can walk us through that and then, you know, feel free to give us, you know, the biblical case for that too because, you know, I want to hear, you know, hear from you and then hear your biblical reasons just so, you know, like opportunity to learn. Well, so can you walk us through that? Um, it, it, just speaking conceptually, I think the important thing is that we understand the last days began at Christ's first advent. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years now. Um, you see, mm. people often say, well, are we living in the last days as though, as though that's some great secret? Well, notice how the book of Hebrews starts that God spoke in all of these various ways and uh, through these various uh, voices. Uh, God continued to speak through the prophets. But in these last days, and that was written in the first century, in these last days, he has spoken once for all by his son. That's the complete and perfect revelation. And so the last days, and this is consistent if you will study this through the New Testament, the last days is a period of time uh, from Christ's first coming until his second coming. Okay, I was going to ask you about that. Okay, so you interpret that between the, the first and second advent. Yes, and secondly, um, then I want to, say that what's happened in these last days is that no longer uh, do we have world domination domination by by Babylon 
or uh, the Medes and Persians or the Greeks or the Romans, but God's kingdom has been set up. And um, the reason we know that God's kingdom has been set up is that Jesus told his disciples, when I ascend to the Father, you'll know that I'm seated at his right hand. That's, if I could say this uh, carefully, that's the driver's seat. He's in the driver's seat. He he is the king. Mm. And he says, you'll know because I'll send my spirit as confirmation. And so um, we're in the last days. His kingdom has been established. And, And Lucas, I would say that this millennial language that we find only in Revelation 20 and nowhere else. Remember, the book of Revelation is symbolic. And so instead of talking of the kingdom, uh, he talks, uh, uh, John talks in terms of this millennium. And so I, I would see the millennium as, as an illustration um, of, of the kingdom. So the millennium began at when Christ set up his kingdom. And, and you see, at that point, the amillennialist would not disagree at all. Yeah, correct. So, so are, I'm sorry, go on. Well, let me just say, there, there's two ways we can handle this. And the early Methodists, while, while I will defend them and, and believe that they're basically correct, they saw a future millennium. Yes. Um, which which began really and specifically with the conversion of the Jews that uh, yes. that is in Romans 11:26 when all Israel is saved they see that's the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37 the dry bones come back to life and mm. and they talk a lot about that I, I, I've read through the literature and, and I'm trying to represent them correctly. They, they talk a lot about that. So my understanding is the kingdom is here, and and that is the millennium. But there's ebb and flow. There's highs and lows. And the problem, Lucas, is we may live our whole life in, in an ebb period. Hmm. And we don't live long enough to see what God's doing. The trajectory is up, but it's kind of like this. And if I can say it like this, if you're in a foxhole, you can't tell if you're winning or losing. That's, yeah, you that's don't know what's going on, right? That's why we have to have a, a, a biblically-based theology that says we've already won. But... You see, people will push back and say, oh, these are terrible times we're living in. Are you blind to that? No, I'm not blind to it. But are you blind to um, to thousands of years of world history? There has been progress. And, and sometimes the people who complain the loudest are those who have benefited the most. But they have no no perspective. The last days are the best days, because that's when God's spirit is being poured out. 
Where, where do you stand in terms of preterism? Are you, are you, uh, you know, one, I know you're definitely not a hyper preterist. <laughs> no, no. And, and, um, and again, let's make sure we have everybody in the discussion yeah. with us. The hyper preterist view says that all eschatological events were fulfilled in the first century. And, and that's a heretical viewpoint because including Christ coming, the resurrection yeah, of the dead. That's right. Yeah. Um, but a, a moderate preterist viewpoint then says um, that much of what is being described in the book of Revelation happened in the first century. But as we move towards um, chapters um, 19 through 22, then um, the past blurs into the present and the present blurs into the future. So I, I would have already uh, offended the the consistent full preterist because they're mm. trying to make everything happen in the first century. Um, yes. And all, all I want to say here, Lucas, we're just trying to introduce people um, to, to the fact that serious Bible scholars um, don't all agree with what they saw in the movie. That's kind of what we're trying to say. See, yeah. here's what you've got to go back to. You've got to do the, the hard work of, of studying Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And, and that speaks of a span of time that's 490 years in length from the time Daniel was in until the time Christ comes and sets up his kingdom. But what happens is dispensationalism says, but there's a gap there. The clock stopped after week 69. And we could get into it more complicated, but it, the simplest way is that they stop the clock with seven years to go. And so they project, they project that seven years into the future. When you think about that, that makes this measurement meaningless because the gap is four times as long as, as the period that was being described. You know, we, we've, we've been on hold for 2000 years now, but they arbitrarily say, that everything after Revelation chapter 3, from Revelation 3 to Revelation 19, that all covers that future seven-year period. And, well, they're the scholars. You know, they must be right. But it's a house of cards. It's based on assumptions that they can't prove. You can't find a gap in Daniel's 70 weeks. And, and until they can establish that gap, then their futuristic interpretations um, are have no support. But if you take it consistently, the 70 weeks, essentially, you have that same seven-year period working out in the first century. Now, there, there's a lot of you know, I need a blackboard to work all of this out, but we don't. Yeah, because that goes into the Alva Discord, yeah. right? You know, is that where you're going? Well, here's what's interesting. You see, um, the Olivet Discourse 
in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is a continuation of Daniel. But where's the Olivet Discourse for John? Well, it's what would book, you say to that? Yeah, it's the Book of Revelation. Okay, so gotcha. So you okay. interpret um, Revelation, like you said, like moderately, uh, dis yeah. uh, moderately preterist. Like, so what I'm saying is the starting point, this would take a whole semester. Uh, yeah. If we had to do this, <laughs> we've got to start with Daniel. And we've got to establish what Daniel says before we can properly understand what Jesus said, before we can properly understand what the book of Revelation is saying. But each one is an expansion of what has previously been said. And then you would, you know, you know, uh, would you interpret then like Matthew, you know, going back to the Alpha Discourse, mm -hmm. you know, would you follow like the Wesley, the Wesleyan explanatory notes where um, he goes all the way up until I believe verse thirty six, yeah. in the first coming, um, uh, and then you know, or sorry, um, eighty seventy, and then verse thirty six on is referring to his second coming. Yes, would you follow that pattern. Yes, I, I think I know there's an attempt to try to make it all fit 70 yeah. AD. Um, but just very quickly, see, they ask, the disciples ask Jesus, um, what will be, uh, when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? Um, well, for them, they conflated all three questions together. Their presupposition was if the temple is ever destroyed, that's the end of the world. Because of this unconditional election, they believed God would never abandon them, although the temple had been destroyed once. Uh, you know, but there's so, there's so much richness there. I'll try to fast forward it. Um, Jesus gives specific detail when you see this happening. If you're up on the roof, uh, don't, don't bother to come in and pack and pray that your flight not be on. Jesus gives specific detail in answer to when Jerusalem is going to fall. And then it seems like if you just look exegetically, Mm -hmm. You've got a near fulfillment, and then in verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, now he's jumping to the end of the world. He says no one knows. And yes, it's, amazing, yeah. it's amazing how, uh, how vague he is in answer to the second question and how specific he was. But the disciples needed that specific information because they were going to live through it. Now, yeah. Lucas, the problem is we're not interested in history. We want to know what's going to happen in, in 2024 and beyond. And <laughs> yeah, so going to win. <laughs> and so what we do is we appropriate everything that Jesus has said in the first 35 verses to the future and try to read how close we are to the end by the signs of, of Jerusalem's destruction. And, and you have preachers that will give full-length messages on six or seven signs um, when Jesus will come, and it all has to do with the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus just makes this parenthetical statement in verse 14. He says, but this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, and then shall the end come. There's only one sign, and it's evangelism. You see, we're back. We're back. Yeah, definitely. It's, yeah. it's 
how how many people have never heard the name of Christ. I, w- um, I want to dive more into like the classical aspect now because in the question I have is that uh, when you understand historicism, which is the key to like Puritan Methodist eschatology, um, historicism, though it would interpret Matthew the Alpha Discord in a preteristic fashion, mm-hmm. they still wouldn't say X equals Y, as in Revelation equals the Olivet Discourse. So um, I want to hear from you, and you know, you know, again, you know, pick your brain a little bit. Mm-hmm. What What do you think about historicism as a primarily failure? Because I know you mentioned, you know, the day year theory, yes. but can you explain, like, 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 why does that mean you no longer ho- hold to the the classical historicist position, and now you're kind of like a moderate? I know, or, or would you describe yourself as a moderate preterist? Yes. yes. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Now. Um, the problem is, um, you see, I think the two major, major options now are, are the preterist interpretation or the futurist. That's okay. where the real battle is. And you see, bo- both of them see the body of, of Revelation as dealing with a seven-year or three-and-a-half-year period, to be more exact. The question is whether it happened in the first century or whether it will happen in the 21st century. In contrast to that, the historicist view sees the book of Revelation as covering at least 2,000 years. We don't know how, mm-hmm. how long. It's, it's, it's the whole span of church history. Yep. Now, I tried to write a commentary on, on the book of Revelation, and I tried oh. to engage with these different viewpoints. The problem, Lucas, is that um, no two historicists connected the same symbolic descriptions with the same historic events. It, Interesting. It became too arbitrary. And one of hmm. the greatest criticisms, Lucas, is that that every historicist commentator, and it stands in my mind, Alfred Barnes would be um, – would be a, an example. Yep, the Presbyterian. Okay. So the problem is everything that happens in the in the uh, trumpets and the vials and, and and all of this that's going finds some fulfillment in European history. But the church is not confined to Europe. And it's <laughs> I'm just going to use this term. It's almost a discriminatory um, interpretation because it pays no attention to what God's doing on any other continent, so to speak. But it's the arbitrariness of it. Um, uh, it. It almost looks like they're grasping at straws at times. And and I think then when when this all came to a head with William Miller, and, and and his um, his calculations were not rocket science. It was just it, there were many people saying the same thing. Uh, he just happened to get get the, the ear of the public, and, and I think that we are so far down the road now that if you tried to make this day year theory work, you would have to work backwards. 1,260 years, where, where would you find a bona fide starting point that was objective? And 
you can only kick it down the road so far. And, and I, 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 I think the consensus is that, that we stretched this theory to its breaking point. And, and so, mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I would just suggest there, there's, there's a debate book, uh, co-authored by Kenneth Gentry and Thomas Ice. Uh, Ice is the pre-mill, Gentry is the post-mill, but they're not dealing with millennial theories. They're dealing with preterism or futuristic theology. And um, they basically say in, in the introduction that these are the two viable options today. Now, we're not telling people they can't go down another road, but we're saying people have come to this point in theology. You know, we can learn some things by our mistakes. You know, uh, the early church, uh, by the year 1000, there were many in the early church at 1000 that thought that would be the end of the millennium. Hmm. See, we don't know history well enough to know that. But see, history debunked that because we've already gone over 2000 now. Well, yeah, that was the Augustinian. Yeah, interpretation. so there were some, some assumptions that sounded fairly logical, but time itself has, has disproven them. And, um, of course, all of the date setters, um, have been disproven. And we, we yeah. continually have, have a scourge of, 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 people setting dates. And if no man knows the day or the hour, I guess any date you set would be the one day Christ won't come. Yeah. Yeah, Right. Yeah. I mean, you you know, it's probably safer to say, Uh you know, this is the day that Christ won't come than it is. This is the day Christ. Not probably it is safer to say that. (laughs) Do you, uh, you know, one more question. Do you, uh, do you also then interpret revelation 13 as, as Nero, like Nero would be the fulfillment of that? Yes. And gotcha. Okay. Uh And then you stop at chapter, you said, um, 18 and then 19 through 22. Well, 19 is, is 19 is sort of a, uh, see there, there are these, um, times when, um, we have action and then we break away from the action. And when there is more action, we break away from the action and, and uh, revelation is, is very, um, consistent. It's in terms of six and one, but you know, it's sevens, but after six, there's a breakaway. And of course that that's based on, on the creation week. God works six mm-hmm. days and rested on the seventh. And so there's, you know, there's, there's six trumpets, there's six vials, there's six of this and six of that. And then there's a breakaway chapter 12, I think is an epic chapter. That, dis- that discusses, gives us a, a worldview from beginning to end. And I, I think we make a mistake if we try to make everything exactly sequential. I think Revelation 19 would be another kind of epic picture. But then we begin to move into the future. And we know we're in the future because it's describing things that are not present. So, uh, so I want to give my viewers some, you know, help too. Be so. It sounds like then. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, do you interpret some things idealistically then in Revelation, where yes, it was fulfilled in you know um, eighty seventy or leading up to that, but it's also applicable for today. Like because Douglas Wilson, he interprets chapter twenty one and twenty two as referring to um, symbolically as the new covenant. Yeah. 
like the new Jerusalem replacing the old, like, would you interpret that as future, not go down that symbolic well, new covenant? Let me, replacement say, of old? let me say that idealism is a good application. It's the practical. It's the so what question. What, what difference does it mean? But there are so many time indicators in the book of Revelation that I can't, I can't uh, ignore all of those time indicators. It, it's either past, present, or future. The idealist view is that it's timeless, that these are dynamics that happen over and over again. Okay. Um, well, that's a good application. And, and I think Robert Mulholland, uh, wrote, wrote a book on Revelation, uh, was a part of, uh, Asbury Seminary. And I respect him very much for, for that. Um, and so I'm just dropping that in, in case somebody would want to pursue, pursue that. But for me, um, it doesn't do justice to all the time indicators. Now, um, pushing back a little bit against what Douglas Wilson may be saying. Um, yeah. Okay. In Revelation 21 and 22, we could make a list. I would, I would say we could make a list if we just did the inductive Bible study of at least six things that are present realities. But we could also make a list of at least six or more things that are not present realities. And so I think it's the present blurring into the future. It's kind of like um, we're, we're already living in kingdom come. We're already experiencing some of, of the blessings. Um, I'm already enjoying eternal life right now. Um, but, but when it says, um, it's already not yet, is yeah, what it sounds like. that's right. Yeah. And, and it sounds to me like that what Wilson may be doing is, is putting everything over on the already side. And I've got to say, wait a minute. It's talking about there will no longer be any curse. There will no longer be any death. Oh, wait a minute. We've got to put some of that over on the not yet side. Yeah. You can't go too crazy. Yeah. You know, we yeah. get closer and closer to hyper preterism yeah. here. Yeah. So, so I, and we're just talking about basic interpretation of scripture. Um, yeah. I, I, I think, uh, there's a danger in, in trying to make everything like, like if I've got a neatly worked out paradigm and I try to make the Bible fit or try to make God fit, it always, it always fails. God's bigger. And, and, um, you go, you go with the assumptions that do justice to the most of scripture, but you have to be open to the fact I might be wrong on something. Yeah. They were wrong on the first coming, mm -hmm. you know, we're definitely going to get, you know, get wrong, but, and, you know, just to go back to, you know, what you said earlier though, is in the beginning, you know, you know, the focus nowadays in eschatology is on the antichrist yes. when it should be on Christ, because, you know, we can know the details. Yeah. Of or um, or put off the finer details, but the you know the true things you know the you know the non negotiables is that Christ is, has yes. won, and the Lord is enthroned yeah. and He is coming back, and and, and, and our focus should be yeah, on that's Him. Right. That's right. Just take that for a moment and play that out. So for the preterist viewpoint, um, the six 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 is a reference to Nero Caesar. 
in the historicist viewpoint, it represents the office of the Pope. This is, yes. and, and it's whoever is currently in, in that position. In the futurist position, it's whatever politician you don't like. And it may, <laughs> and, and, um, I call it the Antichrist of the Month Club, um, because, <laughs> because, and, and I wish I had saved all the pamphlets and all of the documents that I've ever seen proving that Mussolini, that Adolf Hitler, that, um, Stalin, that Obama, Obama, that, Ronald Wilson Reagan, obviously, that's six letters and three words. Um, it's whoever you don't like. And we've lost all credibility with thinking people when, uh, when we just lambast people that we disagree with and call them the Antichrist. If you, the term Antichrist actually doesn't even occur in Revelation. But it occurs in First and Second John a total of five times, and it wouldn't take too long to pull together everything that John says. But John says they were present in the first century, that they were numerous, and that they were against Christ. It's such a different description than what we have today, especially after we've seen the movie. Um, there's no reference to politics in, jo- in yeah. what John tells us. It's basically we deny Jesus is the Christ. That's the basic. Um, it's religious. Yeah. It's theological. Yeah. And, you know, the sad thing is, Lucas, sometimes if you don't agree with what people think, they believe, they conclude you don't believe the Bible. They do, and that's the problem. And, and that's a problem. And I've studied it and preached it for fifty years, and and I'm not infallible, um, but if I tell people what I what I think the Bible teaches, th- they think I'm heretical. Yeah, they do. I mean, unfortunately, you know, you know, the problem is, is that we you know we haven't been taught a historical uh, interpretation of scripture or at least what other people held okay some people believe otherwise it's it's you know dispensationalism has come along this is this is the eschatology mm-hmm. and with somebody who's only been taught that that's all they know they don't know that other things exist when they come you know uh in, in contact with that it's so ingrained within them where it's like oh heresy mm-hmm. this is so foreign to them where it's just you know they don't want anything to do with it and and that's, and that's an issue and 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 even with you know the post-millennials today uh-huh. Is when you talk about the past post-millennialists, I even see a little bit with them mm-hmm. where they interpret, you know, everything monolithically, yeah. not realizing there there is there is variety, mm-hmm. you know, there is disagreements even among post-millennialists. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to major on the majors, and we've got to tell people Jesus is coming again, ready or not, and uh, there will be a resurrection. I said a general resurrection. Some dispensationalists believe in as many as seven different resurrections. Um, mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that they have studied the Bible more thoroughly than I have. But it means that they've never taken into account the, the concept of synonyms. And, and there's those who want to take a particular Greek word that's pronounced bima 
and say that that's a separate judgment from the other judgment. And you have to give writers, I mean, if I talk one minute, uh, Lucas, about going home, and then a few minutes later talk about my house where I live, you can't conclude that I own two two pieces of property. You, you, you know, I'm not that rich. I don't own two pieces of property. I just happen to use a synonym. And it's as basic as that, uh, that people try to make artificial distinctions and, and break out. You buy all these charts. And frankly, I don't think God, it has to be that complicated for God to accomplish his will. Yeah. What, uh, what book would you direct, uh, our, our audience to you know to read from yours and 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 study of this eschatology that we're talking about or any other books that you would recommend. You know, it, it depends on where where you are in your studies. Um, I wrote a book thirty years ago called called The Hope of the Gospel, and and I'm not trying to be um, self promoting. No, definitely, yeah. Um, definitely it's a four hundred page book um, that that deals with all of these different positions, works it out ex exegetically, historically, theologically, and practically, and you can find it on the internet. Um, it, it, it doesn't put any money in my pocket. Everything that is made goes right back into more, more printing and more ministry. So I, I can say that without trying to be self-promoting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that book is, is subtitled An Introduction to Wesleyan Eschatology. I'm not assuming okay. everybody is Wesleyan. And so, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of good books out there. But don't don't bypass um, Daniel Steele's book called uh, A Substitute for Holiness. It, it's an awkward title, and it doesn't convey what it's about. But, but Steele is interacting with this emerging dispensationalism that's new on the horizon and um from a historical standpoint it's it's very very uh significant yeah you wouldn't put that together that, that that's a book about um eschatology so you know you know that is is uh uh interesting uh, do you want to leave our our viewers with any final words and then we'll sign off until next time um i i think we're not trying to deal with labels but we're trying to deal with concepts and I'm not trying to get every one of our viewers to put on a post-millennial bumper sticker. What I want <laughs> them to understand is that something turned, something happened at the cross and the cross was the decisive victory. But over time there is a progressive victory. And the church gains ground and it's pushed back and it gains ground and it's pushed back. But over the span of time, we are making a difference. Christ will return and that will be the consummate victory. But you see, we live in between the decisive victory and the consummate victory. And it's, it's inconceivable that that span of time would be a, a, a span of defeat. We, the church, the church began in victory. At least the New Testament church, I would say, began in victory, and it will end in victory. Well, it's mm. inconceivable then that we would settle for defeat from then until now. 
And so un- understand that, that God is accomplishing his purpose and it is going to work out. And, um, we may not be happy with a lot of things that are happening in our culture, but that to some degree may be because we abandoned, um, this world because we were told we were going to be leaving any day now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not trying to be controversial, but, but when you, when you think of the Jesus revival, the Jesus revolution that happened in, in the movie that came out recently about that. Oh yes. You know, what? Uh, I, I think I can make a case that they were hijacked by Hal Lindsey and and the late great planet earth hmm. and um they god still used them but i th- i think they got hijacked hmm. because of that book um and i was just reading something uh about that that i didn't bring with me so uh i'll just leave that for our consideration um the devil's already lost and he knows it but he's trying to keep that from us. And I think we mm-hmm. believe it. We believe that he's in control and that, that he's winning and that we're going to keep losing till Christ comes. And, and whether, whether you package this pre all or post, that's just one concept having to do with the kingdom of the millennium. But uh, let me plead with you. Um, trust in what Christ did on the cross. He defeated Satan. And no matter how dark it looks, it's just temporary. And I really think that's the message of Revelation. I think that's what um, John was telling the first century church, uh, that uh, even though they're being fed to the lions, um, Jesus is still in control. And look how much has happened from then until now. Amen. Well, Dr. Vic, you know, thank you so much, you know, for being here and giving us us this this, you know, great overview discussion and, you know, trying to work through through, you know, some of these is, uh, issues. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in. Please like and share. And until next time, we're signing off. Take care and God bless. Thanks, Lucas.